Hey guys, we're in a series called Change Your World, and tonight we're talking about having a vision for your life, talking about decisions, directions, and destination. Um, If you would, uh, think about the time that you were learning to drive. a lot of people have different situations with how they learn to drive. Uh, some of you are like, because of the way that I learned to drive or the way that you know, a guardian of mine, a parent of mine taught me to drive, uh, I wish I wasn't driving today. I would be fine if someone chauffeured me around for the rest of my life and I never had to sit behind a steering wheel. And some of you are like, listen, I started driving a farm truck at 13. This is no big deal to me. This is nothing. Um, when I started learning to drive, uh, we had a church in St. Louis where I grew up and we had a parking lot a lot like this one where like, you can't, I don't know if you know this, you can't build parking lots this way anymore. You have to build like medians and things that are supposed to slow people down. And um, that's how our church parking lot was. So I went with my mom in our 98 Ford Windstar minivan uh, and we started uh, practicing driving. So sat behind the wheel and it was the classic, like the first time I sat there, she was like, all right, you're not gonna move in the car today. We're just gonna turn it on, turn it off, get used to it. And I was like, this is gonna be, absolutely terrible. Um, And, you know, we sat down and and finally got to where I was driving and my mom was like creating fake scenarios for me to to deal with as I was driving. So she's like, all right, you're in a neighborhood. You're, you know, right here, this kind of row is the lines and, and she'd be talking and every like, I swear, every like 25 feet, she's like, Little kid driving, you gotta be careful. And I'd like slam on the brakes and I'm like, I'm sweating, my heart's stopping a little bit and I'm like frustrated with her and I'm like, what's wrong with you? We're in a parking lot. There's literally no one here. We're the only car. And she's like, well, that happens sometimes so you gotta know where the brake pedal is. It's like, and I was stressed. It didn't work. Like, I get real quiet when I get angry so I like got in the passenger seat, drove home and it, was, it wasn't awesome. So uh, a couple weeks later after church, my dad, I asked my dad, like, hey, will you let me drive? And he was like, Sure, that's fine. And we're, we're driving in the parking lot and I'm like doing the things that my mom was like, you know, pressing me on it. And I'm like, okay, he's not, he's not saying anything. This is kind of nice. And uh, he just was letting me drive however, whenever, wherever it went. And uh, eventually uh, it was getting dark and he was like, all right, it's probably time to go home. And he was like, you can take it home. I'm like, okay, this doesn't sound too bad. You know, I'm, I'm like 15 and a quarter at this point. You can get your license at 15 and a half. So I was like, all right, this, is, this is, sounds real nice. So I start driving home and it's like, I'm on the road. It's like a four minute drive. So this is not much at all, but I'm like on the road and I look over at my dad and he's got, he's looking out the, the passenger side window. He's not even paying attention to what I'm doing. And he had at some place in the van, in the 98 Ford Windstar, he acquired uh, a pudding cup and a plastic spoon and he's looking out his passenger window eating a chocolate pudding cup. I'm like, what is happening? Why are you so okay with all of this? Um, but it was just a funny kind of juxtaposition of learning with my mom and learning with my dad. And one of the things that as I was driving, one of the things that always stuck with me as I was driving with my dad, I was kind of explaining to him in the kindest way possible like what it was like to drive with my dad. And I'm, I'm uh, the youngest sibling, so I was t- kind of telling him, and he was like, did she do this? Yeah, did she do this? He was like, this is how it's gone driving all of your siblings, so I'm, I kind of know how this goes. And he goes, your, your mom, good driver, but she looks down and only sees about 15 feet in front of the vehicle when she's teaching somebody to drive, so she makes up scenarios, makes you panic and all this stuff. And he gave me this piece of advice that I still hang on to when I'm driving to this day. 
He said, what you do when you're driving is you look at the furthest possible point that you can. So if you're on the highway, you look as far down the highway as you can, and then what ends up happening is that everything else is in your periphery. The cars that are close to you, the cars that are on the side of you, you're, you're checking everything, but you, you keep an eye on what's happening as far as you can see down the road. And he said, what happens then is you see everything else in light of that vision of sight. You see cars that are stopped way ahead. You see brake lights. You see a stop sign. You see something in the road that's going to slow you up, trip you up, make you stop. And you see it a long way off, or you see it for what it really is in light of your destination, and then it makes those little decision points a little bit easier. He said when he, his dad taught him to do that when he was in high school, he said that he went from being kind of a jerky driver trying to stay in the middle of a lane to... I'm focused on one point, and it's easy to make small corrections to get there. I think as young adults, we, we don't have that much decision-making behind us, some more than others, but what we have is a lot of jerky movements and turns and U-turns and stops along the way that we don't always know where the direction is. We don't always know what the destination is, so it's like, man, maybe if I make two right turns, it won't be that big of a deal. Maybe if I stop right here, it's not going to be the end of the world. Maybe if I kind of veer off course, it's not going to be that big of a deal. And what happens is there are people, and I believe that there are people in here that are, are following God and, and want to glorify God with their lives, but what ends up happening is that we don't have a vision for our life, what our life could be and should be, and what God's Word tells us, the way that we should be living and we kind of just live this life of like, I, I mean, I'll get there eventually, right? My soul is good with God. So what does it matter what my life looks like here on earth? So I can make these crazy turns. I can do all these wild things. What does it matter? What does it matter if I bring people along with me? And we end up, and this, here's what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid that we'll end up, that maybe you're in college, maybe you're post-college, maybe you're in your 30s, that you'll be in the next stage of life and you'll look back and go, man, I wasted that season. You look back and say, I didn't do anything with it. I was just keeping my head above water. I was just trying to just make it work for me. And then I think you look back at people that maybe have some vision for their life. And they bring people along with them. They live in a way, like what the Bible says, that will make people look at them and say, what is the reason for the hope that you have? Why do you live that way? And I think we look at those people and we go, man, you're just that super Christian. You just have it figured out. But in reality, what they're doing is walking with Jesus every day, making decisions, heading in a direction, and knowing their destination as they walk. So I want to ask you today, we're, we're going to be uh, Proverbs 28, 19, and I have a question for you after we read it. Proverbs 28, uh, 19 says this. Yeah, this is in, sorry, 29, 18. Uh, there is, and this is in the KJV, where there is no vision, the people perish. But he that keepeth the law, happy is he. Now, th there's a little bit of a word jumble there, but read that first section again. Where there is no vision, the people perish. Because I think we ask the question, like, when you hear about, okay, we're going to talk tonight about having a vision for your life, and you're like, 
what does it matter? I'm 18. What does it matter? I just started working in college, after college. What does it matter? I'm not married yet. What does it matter? It's not like we have kids yet. And you, you have this attitude of like, what does it matter? And what the author is talking about right here is probably what they think is headed towards kings. Like, hey, where, where the king doesn't have a vision for the people and a hope for the people, the people perish. But I think we can apply that to ourselves too. If we're just floating if we're just kind of moving around and we don't really know what's going to happen, people die. And I think we have to look at that like, yes, you, your soul is secure with Christ if you're in him, if you're following Jesus. But is your life amounting to anything that's bringing people along with you? Are you letting sin fester in your heart and in your life? Are you letting it live below the surface? And we know that sin leads to death. So I'm going to ask you tonight, this is my question, if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. What's your vision for your life? It doesn't have to be anything grand, it doesn't have to be anything novel even, but what's your vision for your life? What's the type of person that you want to be? What are you passionate about? What do you want to pour your energy into? What do you want to pour your resources into? What's your vision for your life? What's your vision for your friend group? What's your vision for your family? What's your vision for your workplace? I think about some people in my family that I'd consider patriarchs or matriarchs, that maybe they were the first believer in their family that they had to have a vision. They saw some people walking the line in front of them they said, I need to end this way of living and I need to start this way of living and I'm thankful for that. Why? Because I'm part of that vision. A people without vision leads to death. What's your vision for your life? What's your vision for your friendships? What type of person do you want to be? Um, we have three quick things tonight, and, and it's going to be a little bit different because we're going to kind of hop in three different uh, passages, and normally we kind of sit down in one of them and talk about them for a little while. And uh, the first one, but we have, we have three things, um, how do you step into a vision-filled life? How do you step into a vision-filled life? The first one is to know God's ways. And, and the reason for this one is when I was reading Proverbs twenty-nine eighteen, I, I knew the first half of the verse, the, the, the first half of the verse says, where there's no vision, the people perish. And I was like, okay, that makes some sense. If you're a king, if you're in charge of some things, and you have yours, and you don't care how your subjects do, yeah, I understand how you might oppress them, how you might make life worse for them so that you do better. That makes some sense. But that's not where the verse ends. And it says, but he that keepeth the law, happy is he. And I was like reading this like, did that just pop in from the last time that I read the Bible? Like, did God just like put that in there and I didn't get it before? That like, there's this, this parallel of, of like having vision for your life and keeping the law of God. Are, are those intertwined or is that just two kind of separate things? But I think it is consistent with what we see in scripture. Psalm 119, 105 says that your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Sometimes I think that if we are living our lives, and you think about those three words, decisions, direction, destination, 
If you have no idea what the path is, what the map is, what's going to illuminate your path, you have no idea how to get to a destination towards a direction. Um, th- this might date me a little bit, but who, who in here had a cell phone when they started driving? Did anybody not have a cell phone when they started driving? That's going to date the room a little bit better. Okay, does anybody remember uh, like going on family, uh, family trips, vacation, and your dad would like go to MapQuest? Anybody remember MapQuest? It was Google Maps before, before Google Maps. Um, you'd go to MapQuest, and you'd put in your family's address, and then you'd go and put in the address of the thing that you were going to, and then you'd, you'd go to this thing called a printer, and you'd make sure it had paper and ink in it, and you'd press print, and you'd get those two pages. One of them had the directions, and one of them had the map. And you'd put those in your car, and me and my buddies would, would be going someplace, we'd go to a concert or something, and it was like, listen, it's, that's, that's how you got around, and if you got off the map, you got to find it on that little map because you're not going to find your way back because none of us had cell phones. Like, it was a weird time. One friend, Eric Kofsky, had a phone. Thank God. He would call his mom and he'd, she'd get us back on, on track. Thank you, Eric, and your mom, Carol. We appreciate it. Um, but what would be fun is you'd, like, reach under your seat and you'd grab, like, a couple of papers and you're like, oh, this is where you went last weekend. That's great. you put it back. But, like, without those, there are two different types of trips. There's trips that like you know where you're going, you're following the map, it's right, none of the, none of the, none of the roads have changed, there's not construction that takes you a detour, or you're on a trip where you're like, man, it doesn't matter where we're going, so it doesn't matter if we get lost. Are you living a life right now where it doesn't matter where you're going? Are you living a life right now that doesn't have any direction or reason or purpose to it? If you're honest with yourself, maybe above the surface it looks like, man, you've got everything figured out. You knew what you were going to do, that you wanted to be a third grade teacher from the time that you were in third grade. God bless you. That was not me. I'm 30 and I'm still trying to figure out what I want to do with my life. But we think that there's this like magical road that, man, as soon as I'm following God, it's going to be on it. But below the surface, you're like, man, nothing's figured out. Nothing looks right. Things aren't good. Things aren't what they should be. But it says that God's word is a lamp to our feet and a light into our path. If we know by reading God's word, it's a lamp. It doesn't say it's the sun. It says it's a lamp. So you can see your next step. Man, I wish... I could look at all of you and have a meeting and go, can I tell you what God's plan is for your life? I wish I could do that, because that would be awesome. And I would probably be your best friend after I did that. But that's not gonna happen. But what I can tell you is that God wants you to read his word, know his ways, and take a step towards him. Take a step towards obedience today. Take a little piece of a step. Maybe it's not a big one. Maybe it's a little one. Because you read something and you go, man, that's not the direction I'm heading. You have two options from there. You go, that was great reading for today. Or you wrestle with it and you go, okay, God, I'm, I'm going to test you on this. I'm going to take that step in that direction where I don't know, that's darkness over there. And I don't know what's behind that, but I'm going to take a step in that direction and see what happens. You know what that is? That's living obedient. 
it was so awesome to hear from our missionaries. We had four missionaries, and I love High Street because there's missionaries all, here all the time. I see Lance Gocher in the room, and, and what's so cool is that like, I always expected, as a kid who grew up in church, like, man, missionaries have everything figured out. Missionaries are those people that we put a magnet on our fridge, we had everything figured out, we prayed for them, they had everything figured out. And meeting missionaries, they have a lot figured out, but they're like, man, I, how'd you get on the mission field? Just kept saying yes to God. Uh, I was a college student, and somebody challenged me and said, hey, have you thought about the Philippines? Hey, have you thought about doing an internship? Hey, have you thought about, and you know what that is? That's helping someone see the direction and the destination, helping someone see the vision for their life. You don't have to have everything figured out one step at a time. What this helps us do is understand God's ways. And the reason I'm phrasing it that way, uh, I grew up in church and I was terrified of getting out of God's will. Still to this day, probably can't tell you exactly what that means, um, but I heard a lot of people repent of it and then I didn't know what that meant afterwards. So I grew up thinking that God had this kind of, like the the picture that I had was there was this jungle of life and God kind of went on the jungle floor and hid this, this string and said, figure it out. So, I, I mean, I poured over decisions through college. I poured over decisions through high school and went, man, I could go to Missouri State or I could go to Missouri Baptist or I could, I, I could still go, I could go to this college. And, and I don't think that God's sitting in heaven going, oh, he's going to pick the wrong one. Oh, he's got two options. He's got this job in finance and this job. Oh, man, he messed it up. He's off the line and nothing's going to go right for him until he's back in line. You don't see that in scripture. God doesn't have this hidden will, this hidden thing that he sits there and and nitpicks you about because you didn't do exactly what he had. Now, what he does have for you is a way of living that is following him consistently. And as as you do that, you get to see how God lights your path. God makes it obvious what it looks like to follow him. You may not know what the future holds, but you're following him today. You're taking the next step of obedience. You're doing the next right thing. Uh, Joshua 1.9 is a verse that a lot of people know. And if you know anything about Joshua, um, Joshua uh, was the heir apparent to Moses. And when, when Moses was this incredible leader who, you know, he had these crazy miracles that happened in front of him. He parted a Red Sea, went up on a mountaintop, and he spent time with God. And it, it was just this incredible relationship. And, and when Exodus ends, it basically said, and Moses died, and then, jo- and then Joshua. And it's like, I can't imagine being Joshua in that situation, and some of you all are in transition, and it's like, you, you feel like you're left holding some pieces, and you don't know what's, what, what way is up and what way is down, and a lot of people know Joshua 1.9, and if you read the first couple verses of Joshua, I mean, it is consistent, the things that he tells him, and you see a lot of them kind of built up in, in 1.9, and I'm going to read that to you first. It says, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, don't be frightened, Don't be dismayed. And listen to these words. For the Lord, your God, is with you wherever you go. There's this this theme through Joshua 1 of like, hey, don't fear. Live strong and courageous. Why? Because God is with you. But there's another theme to it in the verse before that. Joshua 1, 8 says, the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. 
You shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to it all that was written in it. For, when you will, for then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. There's this idea of like, hey, God goes with you. You don't have to live afraid. But don't let God's word, don't let God's ways, don't let his promises live far away from you in a way I mean, what, what he says there is, is threefold. He says, hey, keep, keep God's word in your mouth. I mean, there's a practical piece to that. Be a person who's speaking scripture. He said, keep it in your mind. Meditate on it. Think about God's word. Make it something that's consistent in your heart and in your life. And then he says, so that you go and do. It's not just this think about it, work on it in your head. It, it's, it's, it stays in your mouth. It stays in your mind. And then it goes in your movements. It's part of what you do. And I think that that's when you start to see all of God's word working together, starting to feast on God's word. Proverbs 9.10 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. We have to know God's word if we know what our direction and our destination is going to be. We don't get to just follow God and then go, all right, man, that was great. Now I'm going to go do whatever I want. We need to understand his ways so that we know what his desires are in our life. The reason I use that word ways so that we know God's will, when we know God's will, that's his desire in your life. You'll see that in the Bible. But there's a, there's a pastor named Perry Noble that talks about how he, that, that's true with his wife. He knows her ways, so he knows her will. And, and I'll use the same analogy with my wife, what he talked about. Uh, he goes, I, I don't struggle with knowing what my wife wants for dinner. Her ways are not going to this certain restaurant. And for my wife, that's not going to Waffle House. Um, she, I've asked her, I don't know how many times over the course of us dating and over the course of us being married, she will not hit up the Waffle House with me regardless of time, regardless of the scenario. Um, I love the Waffle House. I want to make it my Waffle home. Uh, but she will not jump in with me and, and go to the Wheezy Heezy. It's not going to happen. And I never see her out with her friends and, and like she comes home and she, it's like, oh, where'd you go? Oh, we went to the Waffle House. It just doesn't happen. Like, it's, it's probably never going to happen. It's one of the things that I've had to kind of put to bed as a, as a dead dream in my heart. But it's going to be okay. There might be Waffle House in heaven. I don't know. They never close. But, <laughs> but I know that those are her ways that she doesn't go there. So when I think about going on a date with her and taking her out to eat, I'm not going, what well, sounds good? Triple hash browns covered in chunked? All-star special, she doesn't want that. Why? Because I know her ways. So if we know the ways of God, we know how he works. We've seen his stuff. We, we, we've read it front to back. No matter how long it takes, we know what he does. We can go, okay, what it is that seems like a push in my life is not lining up with God's word. So I understand that that's not his ways, so it can't be his will for my life. We have to know God's word. It has to be something that we know deep inside of us. That's the first thing, to know God's ways. The second thing is to be obedient today. Um, in that verse in Proverbs 29, 18, it says, but keepeth the law. It doesn't say knoweth the law. It says keepeth the law. Hold on to it. Do it. The, the, the thing that I want you to walk away with with this point is that there are no insignificant amounts of obedience. There are no 
insignificant amounts of obedience. Sometimes I think we look at life and we go, man, God, I will do whatever you have for me. We go to a missions conference and go, God, if it's Guatemala, I'm there. But we won't do little things today. In the ways that I see in the Bible is that God rewards those who do much with little and are obedient in the small things and much will be given to them. Maybe one of the ways that you need to have a vision for your life is that you need to start being obedient in the really small things. And you might look at things and go, okay, what practical difference is that going to make? One, I think it's going to be one a lot harder than you think it's going to be to be obedient in those small things. It's going to be way more rewarding than you think. It is going to make you lean on God in ways that you never thought you had to. To be obedient in small things. Um, I want to talk about the story of Nehemiah for a second. Nehemiah was this guy um, who was in exile. He was a Jewish person, and the Jews uh, were in in exile. Their, Their people had been conquered by the nation of Babylon. So he was one of the people that had kind of stayed on and he was living um, not as someone who had probably much freedoms but had uh, a life there in Babylon. And the beginning of Nehemiah starts out and he's, remember he's not living in his homeland and he hears word that in Jerusalem the walls have been knocked down by fire and the city is in poor repair. And the first thing that I think you kind of think about with Nehemiah is that he had this vision and he had this heart. He knew the ways of God and he knew that God's ways were not that the people of God would live in brokenness, in vulnerability. So in Nehemiah 1.4, you see his response to it. He says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. Why? Because he knew God's ways. But then listen to this, it says, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. He had a situation where he saw the direction, he saw the destination, he saw something that wasn't what it should be, and he did what Logan talked about last night, he saw the need and he stopped. But he was in a situation where he couldn't do a whole lot. I don't know about you, but sometimes when you're thinking about like the vision for your life and like being there, you're like, man, it's hard to see past today. So when you're talking about vision, like I I can't get there. I'm in this spot where I'm with him. I'm mourning. I'm weeping. I don't think I could get there. Well, his response led him to prayer, fasting before the God of heaven. And what you see next is he, he, he prays to God and he pours out his heart to God. And then there's this little phrase at the end of, of Nehemiah 1, I think it's 8 or 9, that says, and I was the cupbearer to the king. And there's a lot of things built into that short sentence because what it meant is that he probably entered in as an exile, as someone who like, he had no weight in their economy. He had nothing that he could offer them. But what was true of him was that he was the cupbearer. He was the person that before the king took a drink, to make sure it wasn't poisoned, Nehemiah would be the guy to take a drink. Okay, the water's not poisoned. Nehemiah didn't fall over. King, you can have your drink. 
He had to be trusted. He had to be consistent. He had to be faithful over a long period of time to get that role. This was not a role to say, hey, let's put anybody there because his life doesn't mean anything. It means that he had to have been trustworthy. He, his word had to have meant something. And that means something because what happens next is that he walks into the king's chambers and he said, listen, I had not been sad before the king. And the king looks at him and says, why are you sad? He was consistent. He showed up to his job. He did what was expected of him and he did a good job doing it. How many of us can say that? When the king looks at him, the king says, so what are you, he, he tells him, he says, king, I'm just, I'm, I'm in poor disrepair because my, my city is broken down by fire and I don't know what to do. And the king uses this term, he says, so what are you asking? Nehemiah wasn't asking anything. Nehemiah didn't necessarily have the vision poured out at that moment to the king, but what happens next proves that he had some planning. He had some diligence. He was obedient in the little things. The king says, hold on, what are you asking? And Nehemiah starts opening up this playbook. And he says, I'm going to read the beginning of it. Nehemiah 2.4, the king said of me, what are you requesting? He says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. Even when the king, the person who held physical power over him, said, hey, are you asking for something? And this is the guy who could give it to him. He went, okay, God, I need to stop and check in with you first. God, will you help me? And what he started to pour out over the next couple of verses is, man, what would be awesome is if I could leave my job and go check on the walls. And uh, it's a long way, so if you could write a letter to all the governors that I'll have to pass through their lands, um, that would be awesome, because I could show them the letter and I'd have kind of your approval, your blessing to move through those lands. And then he said, um, what would be really awesome is if you would write me a letter to this one governor who I know has a lot of forests and has a lot of lumber, and you write me a letter and tell him that he'll give me everything that I need to repair the walls. And he lists out a couple more things and the king says, okay, go. Nehemiah has this big ask of the king and we look at it and we go, okay, there's a lot of leadership things there. He saw the need and he had a plan for it and he did all the things that he did, but he did so many small obediences that aren't even written about except for that phrase and he was the cupbearer to the king that I think that our generation is in danger of losing because we're afraid or unwilling to be obedient in the small things. What if this generation said, I am not going to fit into that? I'm going to be obedient in small things because he who is faithful with little will be given much. No amount of obedience is insignificant. What's a piece of obedience? What's a small piece of obedience that God would have you obey him in today? The third thing that you can step into a vision-filled life is to let God define you. And let God go with you. I want to uh, highlight the story of a man named Gideon. Uh, and Gideon was uh, a Jewish person that, again, um, there, was, there was some wartime happening in Gideon's life. And uh, Gideon wasn't on the front lines. Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press. And you hear that and you're like, what does that matter? Well, wine presses were kind of in the basement. They were like in the valley. They were in the side of a mountain. They were kind of tucked away. Um, 
and he was threshing wheat, which I don't know how many of you have threshed wheat recently, but I don't know what people are doing at Fall Fest these days, so I don't know. But what you do when you thresh wheat is that in the wheat that you would harvest, there would be good crop and bad crop all mixed together, and you would throw it up in the air in kind of a movement, and the bad stuff, all the, all the, the stuff that you wouldn't want with the wheat would kind of fly away with the wind. So what you would do is you'd go to a hilltop, you'd go to a spot that would be really windy, really seen, really known, and you'd thresh the wheat there so the wind would take away that stuff. Well, here was Nehemiah, he was threshing wheat in a wine press. Why? Because he's a coward. Not Nehemiah. Gideon was a scaredy cat. Gideon was afraid of the people around him that might hurt him. And he wasn't crushing life. Okay? He was not doing a good job with what he'd been given. But listen to what is told of him. This is Judges 6.11. It says, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abazarite, while his son Gideon was beating out the wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. Hiding. It says, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And I don't know if Gideon's sitting there like in the, in the basement doing his thing, trying, trying to make something happen while he's also looking over his shoulder for these Midianites. And he hears this voice that there's the angel of the Lord and they come and say, oh, Gideon, mighty man of valor. I don't know who you're talking to, but I'm hiding right now. So this mighty man of valor might be up somewhere else. He might be on the front lines, but it's probably not me. And the angel of the Lord kind of clarifies, and then Gideon kind of says, hey, hold on. Actually, while I've got you here, in the next couple of verses, he stops him and he goes, hey, you, you claim that God's going to do all these great things in a generation, and I haven't seen him. And he has some issues. Once he's got God on the line, he's like, hold up a minute. Let me ask you some questions. In Judges 6, 14 through 17, says this, and the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours. And save Israel from the hand of Midian. And he says, do I not send you? And he said to him, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. And I'm the least in my father's house. He's like, listen, my state is not a good state. Strong people don't come from it. And then you look at my dad's house and I'm the runt of the litter. I'm not the strongest. I'm not the best. And his response says everything. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, if now I've found favor in your eyes, then show it to me as a sign, and who will speak to me. What doesn't happen here is that God doesn't come to him and say, hey, I see some leadership qualities in you. I see some, some deep-rooted like abilities that could be fleshed out that you have in you. I see it in you. He comes in and says, hey, I'm going to redefine you based on who I say that you are. Gideon didn't have it all together. Gideon didn't see the vision for his life. Gideon had issue with God at that moment. And God came, into him and came to him and said, hey, I have a vision for your life. You're going to do great things, not because of what I see in you, but, but what I can do through you. And then there's this attitude of like, okay, 
One, he asked him to prove it to him, and God did. And then there's this idea of like, Gideon wasn't the best leader. And Gideon has some of the coolest stories because they get thousands of people, thousands of people that are going to go fight the Midianites. And God looks at him and says, man, if you win with that crew, you're going to look around and puff up your chest and say, you did it. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to cut it in half and cut it in half and cut it in half and cut it in half until it's 300 guys. And then you're going to go fight and win. Not because Gideon's a great warrior. God calls him that because he gets to define him because he's his creator. He's his purchaser. And he was able to do great things because, not because Gideon's great, but because God is great. Because this is the same as what we read about in Joshua. It's not about the person, it's about the, per- the God who goes with that person. You might be here and you might say, listen, I've screwed it all up. I- I've got this wasteland behind me of horrible things that I wish I didn't have. But the good news about vision is it's, what, it's moving forward. Gideon was right. Gideon had like a, a leg to stand on when he's saying like, listen, I'm not the strongest. You've seen me. Like, this is not it. And God was like, I got the right guy. I know what I'm doing. Why? Because he's God. If you're here and you'd say, listen, this whole thing about having a vision for your life, I'm figuring it out on my own. I would challenge you to ask the question, who is it that gets to define you? How well has it worked for you to define yourself? For you to go out on your own, for you to surround yourself with your guys, for you to surround yourself with your girls, how, how much do they let you down? How's that definition that you made for yourself working out? Or you have a creator God who loves you so much that he created you. God's word says that he knew you in your womb before your parents did. He knows the amount of hairs on your head. He knows you better than anyone else in the world. And when he saw you in your sin, He didn't just wipe it and make it clean for a a little bit. He said there has to be a sacrifice to pay for what's owed on your account. So he sent someone who didn't owe anything, his son Jesus, and he said, you go die in their place, take what they deserve. And that old definition of all the sins, all the bad things that you've done, that goes on Jesus now. 2 Corinthians 5.17 But if anyone is found in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone away. Behold, the new has come. God is going to redefine you and go with you. Have you done that? The Bible talks about making him the Lord of your life. And you read that and what we read in Judges and what we read in Joshua is that it has Lord in all capitals. And that's not just saying like a respectful like master or king or he's saying like Lord who deserves everything. The one who gets to decide everything for me. Are you at the place where you are willing to say, God, I haven't done it on my own. I haven't figured it out. I need you to redefine me. It's simple. It's asking God, God, will you redefine me? God, I've tried on my own and I can't do it. I need you to do that for me. And doing that every day. Following him, that's what that looks like. 
God, not your, not my, my will, but your will be done. Will you bow your heads?